I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Careers podcast. I'm Sarah Ellis and this is the final episode in our Be Your Brilliant Best series. Today you'll have the opportunity to hear me talk to two different guests who are both here to help us with topics that I think are even more relevant right now than we'd appreciated when we first had our conversations together. First up is Kate Sevilla. She's going to be talking to me about how to work without losing your mind. Kate is very honest and candid about her own experiences and she's also interviewed lots of people um, in the process of researching her book as well about tough challenges and what has kind of helped and hindered along the way. So whether it is a horrendous boss, whether it is working every hour and have feeling like you've got no life, crying in the toilets, all those things that we never hope are going to happen, but inevitably do at some point during our careers. There's always those moments where things feel a bit less squiggly and a bit more knotty. And it can feel really hard in those moments to find your way through those times to kind of get unknotted and you can feel really alone it can feel really lonely and clearly have a really tough impact on your mental health and so I always really enjoy spending time with Kate because she doesn't shy away from those tough conversations but equally she's fun and funny and doesn't kind of take herself too seriously really kind of similar to us and I think what we try to do with squiggly careers she really wants to help people in a practical way so that if and when those things do happen, you feel reassured that it's not just you and you have the confidence to do something about it. Then after Kate, you'll hear me talk to Rita Clifton about imposter syndrome. One of those topics that just never goes away, unfortunately. And actually what I really liked about talking to Rita with the work that she's done and in the process kind of writing her book, which is called Love Your Imposter, is that Rita's approach is a bit different. So rather than trying to kind of squash our imposter or pretend it's not there or wish it's not there, she actually just suggests that it's something that we all have and that we've kind of got to change our relationship with imposter syndrome. And, you know, talking about Kate being reassuring, Rita is incredibly impressive. Rita CBE, I should say. If you have a little Google of her career as a kind of chief exec and as a chair and all the various different work she's done, And I think probably what you'll hear in my conversation with Rita, and certainly if you do read her book, is that, yes, she'll really help you with loving your imposter. You're kind of thinking about that in a different way. But actually, she's just full of wisdom 
and really useful and sensible career advice. So I hope you find this episode useful. Um, Next week, Helen and I will be back together talking about distraction downfalls. It's something that we mentioned to our followers on Instagram. We're just at Amazing If. And we got overwhelmed with so many responses of this gets in my way and all the different distractions that we all now have when we're trying to do good work. We thought it'd be a really good topic to address and kind of explore in a bit more detail. So I hope you enjoy today's episode and I'll be back at the end to say goodbye. So Kate, thank you so much for joining us on the Squiggly Careers podcast today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And I'm going to dive right in to thinking about stress and burnout, but hopefully really thinking about this in a positive way about avoidance and prevention is really going to be the kind of theme for today. Let's think about this really positively. And I am interested to know whether you'd started writing your book prior to 2020, but then within the book, you've got some reflections about kind of what happened in 2020 and how that impacted how we feel about work and kind of stress. What changes did you observe kind of last year in terms of how people thought about preventing burnout and stress? Was there a change in sentiment from both the individual perspective and also perhaps in organisations? Or was it a continuation? I'm just interested to know kind of what could you feel from the conversations you were having? I was actually really thankful that because of the pandemic, my book got delayed because then I was able to kind of adjust some bits of it and to Mm -hmm. kind of really address something that I think more people started to become aware of and care about. I think that burnout was something that so many people were familiar with, but actually when something becomes kind of buzzwordy and I think Mm -hmm. people kind of had an attitude about it, if you know what I mean, and are a bit like, oh, mental health is important, but people don't ever really want to kind of get into the darker side of it or they kind of like, they'll train up mental health first aiders, but they don't want to address the kind of toxic culture in their workplace that really (laughs) contributes to burnout and to feelings of being overwhelmed and, and overworked. So I think what's been interesting over the last year is hearing more and more people talk about the kind of the reality of burnout because you you have like the kind of glamorized symptoms that people will always talk about people weren't talking about the kind of day-to-day and how and how serious it can impact your life so I think that there's been a, a much wider and personal conversation about overworking yourself and what are we doing this for who is this benefiting really so I think on an individual level workers people have had to confront their own relationship with their work and with their careers. And if you've been lucky enough to be able to still work from home, and I say lucky enough with, you know, the caveat that it doesn't probably feel that way if you have children when you also can't send them to school and you also don't have childcare or support. So it probably doesn't feel super lucky, but we all can appreciate actually, <laughs> yes, that is lucky that we were able to keep earning an income and, and work from home at the same time. But when you have all of those things happening in your household at one time, and especially if you've never had to do that before, and you don't kind of have those natural boundaries of an office, mm-hmm. <laughs> a door that you can close and a, a clear kind of transition from your work day to coming home to your family or your partner or your cat, whoever, and taking that time out for yourself to transition into your kind of quote unquote real life, that's really difficult. So I think people first and foremost, have had to kind of reevaluate their relationship to their careers, their relationship to their work, and maybe their relationship to uh, the toxic nature of their relationship to their work. 
And then I think from a, an employer standpoint, I think more and more companies have come to realize, oh, actually, we can let people work from home. We can make things work remotely, whereas so many people in the past were told no. So I think obviously working in a very extreme version of all of this, and it's this is not how it is if you're just doing flexible working, remote working, or even you know working from home or working for yourself. But I think that it's been a, a big perspective change and kind of shift in everyone's reality of what are we doing and who is this for? And one of the things that really struck me as you explore all the kind of causes of burnout, and I wondered... Is there a, a kind of natural tension, perhaps, between the things that often causes stress or contribute to burnout and almost how much control of those things that we have? So I was thinking, so often it's maybe the person you work for. Let's be honest, kind of our managers yeah. play a really big part in our kind of well-being. It's the culture that you're working within. It's how much work you've got to do. All of those kind of things. And I was sort of grappling in my own mind with going intuitively, I always want to be able to say to people, you own this, like you yes. can take accountability and, and you can take positive action. But is there also this tension of there are also some things that you probably can't change or can't control? That was one of the big things that I kind of grappled with, with my own kind of experiences of overworking myself and having a really, really hard time at work and, and writing this book because it's, you never just want to make it an individual's responsibility, right? It's like mm. with um, sustainable shopping, there's a lot of emphasis put on individuals to save yeah. small businesses, to save the economy and to um, make sustainable choices where, you know, it's not just down to individuals. And it's the same with work. I think there's absolutely a tension between what's causing burnout and your kind of own responsibility with it. And it's a mess. That's why it's so hard yeah. is because yeah. there's these things that are, <laughs> within your control and not within your control. And I think the kind of overall balance that I've found or become aware of, because I cannot pretend for one second that I've perfected <laughs> it, right? I've explored it a lot. I've not perfected it. That'll take a lifetime. But it really is about understanding why are you having a hard time at work? What's going on with this relationship with your perhaps your manager that you feel is causing you so much stress? And it's being able to kind of unpick, okay, and take responsibility for the things that you are bringing to the table. Because I think it's really easy just to blame particularly a manager for making your life a living hell at work. And to really just kind of like, well, it's them, you know, they're crazy, whatever. They're threatened by my ambition and my potential. And it's very <laughs> easy to kind of brush things off that way and to kind of make it almost simplistic in that sense. But I think really having to unpick, okay, well, what's going on here? What am I bringing to the table what in my behavior perhaps is contributing to these miscommunications and this fraught relationship. And then also being able to sit with the discomfort of, oh no, these parts are all you. This has nothing to do with me. Once you can kind of clearly-ish define what is them and what is you, that makes it a lot clearer for you to kind of decide what it is that you're going to do about it and how you're going to continue from then. There's a huge tension between those two things. And that's why it's so damn hard. That unpicking is so important. You've had, I think it's fair to say, quite a few tough times in your career as I was going through. <laughs> and I was sort of really feeling yes. for you at certain moments, but probably no more so. And probably because I was a fan and I used to read it, but you were editor in chief at the pool. 
and I'm sure lots of our listeners yep. will have very, read for them. a very brief moment in time. For a very yes. brief moment. <laughs> kind of basically that very brief moment was right at the end, probably at the in the toughest four months. And I wondered what helped you get through that period of time because I, I know it was a relatively short period of time, but that was it would have also been incredibly tough. You know, you weren't getting paid, people weren't getting paid, suppliers weren't. It was very high profile. You know, there was lots of people kind mm. of talking about it. And I almost cannot contemplate quite what that must have felt like kind of for you and thinking, do I just work harder, faster, more? Do I opt out? It must have been incredibly tough. It was. <laughs> I think in a way, because my the working situation I was in prior to joining the pool was so challenging and really, really, really stretched me to kind of the brink of my own sort of like <laughs> ability to cope. I think that that helped me build a pretty good level of resilience to then experience your kind of quote unquote dream job blow up in a really public way that left a lot of people without a lot of money and really angry. A lot of people were very angry. I was angry and yeah, it was, it was very difficult, but how I got through that, what I learned, I think in all of, all of my different working experiences in 2018 was that the best thing that you can do for yourself in really tough situations like that is to be as honest and as transparent as possible. There is no point in trying to pretend that you're totally fine or be super defensive or kind of operate from a place of panic or anger. It's easier to just be honest. And I think in doing that, in being vulnerable that way, I found that I, I had a lot of support during that, actually. I experienced a lot of kindness a lot of people reaching out. And I think that that was because I displayed a bit of vulnerability and honesty, like, look, I'm, I'm really upset and embarrassed. This is awful. I'm sorry. Rather than just making up some line for the sake of PR or whatever. <laughs> I think ultimately it was just kind of being honest with my team, honest with the people who followed me on social media, the journalists that um, were asking me questions just to be kind of as honest and transparent as I could while still being professional. And I think that that allowed people to perhaps like see a bit of humanity <laughs> in, in what was going on. And so ultimately it came down to, I think, my, my the resilience levels that I had already kind of built up and the generosity and kindness of the people around me and of, you know, my personal support network with my partner and my therapist. <laughs> Thank goodness I had already been in therapy for a long time before that all happened. <laughs> But you mentioned one point because um, you said the kind of the word around like stretch in your previous roles. Mm. And there was a line in your book that I really liked that got underlined, you know, the when you're like, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. And you said so many of us stretch ourselves beyond our best. And you were sort of you were both reflecting on your own experiences, but also the stories of lots of people that you'd spoken to around this relationship between how do you keep your sanity and still be successful? Is there an and option here or is it always or? Is it always a yes. trade-off? And, you know, you yeah. definitely observe, you know, none of us would expect there to be a kind of, oh, we'll do these things and it's all going to be fine. But I just wondered, perhaps you could just talk to us a little bit more about this idea of like, what does it mean when you're saying stretching ourselves beyond our best? Yeah, I think that was from the chapter where I was talking about is can we succeed in our careers without just consistently going through this cycle of burnout and, and exhaustion mm. and overwork? 
And in the interviews that I did for specifically kind of for that chapter and around burnout, I was selfishly searching for this answer of, no, we don't have to do that. Here are some very easy ways in which this person <laughs> burnt out and then they recovered and they've never had that happen to them again. But I, I didn't meet those people. I don't know <laughs> if those people exist. What I, what I heard instead were these incredibly harrowing stories of really resilient, highly intelligent, educated women specifically who had completely lost the kind of marker point, the goalpost, whatever you want to call it, of when enough is enough and when you've overworked yourself and stretched yourself beyond the point of kind of recognition. I was fascinated and kind of heartbroken by that at the same time because I think that there is, particularly with women, I think that there is a tendency to, it's like having an internal barometer or thermometer for knowing when it's good enough and when you're good enough. That'll do, pig. <laughs> yeah. That's enough. We don't have that or we feel it or we're measuring it against somebody else or we're letting somebody else tell us when it's good enough rather than kind of having that internal, no, this is good enough. And so I think the kind of balance that I think I was trying to find and maybe probably trying to write through is, okay, these are ways in which we can look after ourselves a bit and be a bit more self-aware about not only why we're overworking ourselves, but what to do when we get to that point. And I think the opposite side of the coin of overworking yourself is understanding your own desire and what is actually driving you and why you're doing this so that you will then know that'll do pig. And one of the things um, I really like this idea, which I'm definitely going to steal, is this idea of you need to be your own chief protector of your own mental health. And I loved this question. I'm always really interested in, we talk about coach yourself questions. What are kind of the key coach yourself questions? And my favourite one out of, there were some brilliant ones in the book. My favourite one was, who or what is living rent free in your brain? I just thought, do you know what? I really wish I had heard that question particularly for the first 10 years of my career. I think somebody had given me that advice once when I got a very difficult relationship, not quite as well written or articulated as, as you've described it there, but said, you do realise you're letting this person take up loads of your headspace. And is that, how do you feel about that? And then I was like, oh, really not great. And so I just, I was really interested to know from you, what has helped you to stop either the who's or the what's from kind of living rent-free in your brain? Like what, you know what they are. And then yeah. how do you stop them being there. I don't want them to be rent-free. I want them to be paying, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you better pay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that this idea of having someone kind of live rent-free in your mind and envy are really kind of intertwined because I think some of the worst instances when I've personally let people not only just kind of live rent-free in my mind, but set up like a whole damn village like at the church hall and a pond, like charity shops, like the lot. Really got um, to town. Exactly. Like they've just created a, a whole world is when I have really grappled with having some issues of envy and comparison around this person. I think for me, it's either always been that or it's always been uh, an authority figure who I thought didn't approve of me and I desperately wanted their approval, but then was like telling myself that I hated them and definitely didn't want their approval and was just like <laughs> totally in denial about <laughs> what was actually going on. So I think 
where I'm at with that now, the kind of how I go mm-hmm. about that is if I notice that I have a person kind of popping into my head when I'm making a decision or I'm thinking about posting something on social or should I try this thing? Should I go about this thing? And that person shows up. I am so much better now at just going, wait a second. (laughs) Like, why are you here? Why is your name? Why is your face, your little avatar popping up when I'm trying to like make this like life decision or decision about my work? And I've learned and I've had to learn some really, really tough, awful lessons with this is there is something about them that you clearly want for yourself that is somehow psychologically threatening to you or challenging to you. And why is that? What is it about that person? And it's not just that they're annoying or you don't like their social feed. Like, it's not that. Like, what are they representing? And the toughest ones have always been they represent this idea that they can make a decision and they are not afraid to fail. And so it's usually speaking to my own, oh, I can't do that because what if it's not perfect and perfect is the enemy of good. I've had to like etch that into my brain. So really it's catching it when I see this person showing up (laughs) ready to like put down the foundations of a new building in my head um, (laughs) and immediately going, why are you here? What does this mean? What do you represent? And I think, honestly, that's just come from like bloody years of psychotherapy. <laughs> One of the things I did just want to um, spend just five minutes exploring, because I find this area really interesting. And we've spoken to a few people about the idea of goals and goal setting, success, ambition. And I wondered whether, as you were kind of exploring all this idea of kind of burnout and kind of looking after ourselves better and having a positive relationship with the work that we do, we all spend so much time working. That feels like a really good goal to have for ourselves what do you think about ambition and burnout and the relationship between the two oh again that is another messy (laughs) messy area isn't it (laughs) for me it's about not letting this idea of what are you trying to achieve what is all that ambition for what where is it driving you And I think, especially when it comes to burnout, a lot of times it's because we're attaching our goals, our sense of self-worth to things like job titles or promotions or OKRs or KPIs that are kind of dictated to us rather than operating from a place of what is it that I actually want to be doing and how is my career or this job part of that. I like the kind of analogy of burners on a, on a stovetop. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't have all burners just kind of going full throttle all the time. You need to distribute your energy differently at different times. So I think if your ambition is tied up in really complicated goals and too attached to your job or too attached to an authority figure, you're going to burn yourself out so much quicker because you kind of, in a sense, don't really know what you're working so damn hard for. I think if you really listen to your yourself and your own desires and you go, okay, this is the thing that I really care about. This is how my current job plays into that. Here are my goals using whatever kind of framework you would like to use, but kind of knowing, okay, this is kind of what this is all for. And having that kind of self-awareness 
to know when you're putting too much of your energy into one space that probably doesn't need to be going. I think that that's the kind of best kind of strategy I've been able to kind of come up with and observe with that relationship. I'd say, okay, I feel like this has not been, this hasn't been a chat where we've gone, oh, we're going to try and summarize everything into top tips. But I am still going to ask you, we ask all of our guests to finish our interviews with their best piece of career advice. And I feel like your book is essentially one big piece of lots of very useful advice for everyone at work. But if you did have to pick one, what would it be? I think for me, this has evolved. And I think probably what I'll say this year might be different than next year. But I think kind of based on what we have all been through in this last year, for me, I think it's about having perspective and thinking about your life as a whole and not just thinking about work as one compartmentalized thing or your singular goal or even your identity. I think it has to be part and integrated into your whole life. That will inform pretty much all your decisions when you start to think of it like that. And you won't always get it right. And you might get it terribly wrong sometimes and need to rebalance. But I think that that, having that kind of be your your North Star, I think is probably the best kind of advice I can give for working at this moment in time. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So, Rita, thank you so much for joining us on the Squiggly Careers podcast. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. And me too. Thanks very much for having me. Looking forward to it. I've spent the last few days immersing myself in imposter syndrome from reading your book and your reflections. And where I wanted to start was really this idea that you suggest that imposter syndrome should perhaps even be called human syndrome, because it is something that is part of us all in some way. And I think everybody has insecurities, regardless of who we are or what other people might think about us. So it's almost one of those things that so many of us know is a challenge or feels like it's perhaps a barrier that's holding us back in our career. 
And I just wondered from your own personal experiences and kind of all the fascinating work that you've done in your career, why do you think that so many of us have this sense in some way of just kind of not being enough? Well, it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, if anyone who's listening in to this conversation has experienced imposter syndrome or imposter feelings, the great thing is that they should know that they're amongst around 70% of people. And actually, that goes up to something like 90% in the creative industries. So if you experience it, you're in good company. People like Tom Hanks, Michelle Obama, Emma Watson, even people like Olivia Colman, the wonderful Olivia Colman. When she arrives on set, she talks about how every time she goes on, she thinks she's going to get fired. And actually, what's so interesting, too, is a lot of people who experience it do talk about how it often drives them on to practice more or to stretch themselves or to do more or to try harder or to put more in. So actually, ironically, a lot of people who experience imposter syndrome go on to really succeed and really manage to make differences to themselves and to organisations. So where does it come from? Where does it come from? Well, that's an interesting thing in its own right. When I was looking at the origins of imposter syndrome, I was looking at some research from the 1970s and a psychologist was asked to help a whole variety of women who were in successful positions. And yet so many of them did not feel that they deserved to be there, that somehow they're an imposter in those roles. And originally, the psychologist thought this must be because they're successful women in particular. But wave after wave of research that's happened since then has actually proved that this isn't just a thing for women. This is a very common human thing to feel, do I deserve this? Can I do this? And so on. And actually, ironically, and sometimes annoyingly, it can be quite a healthy and important drive for us all to move forward and to succeed and hopefully end up running things because we don't half need people who are human beings who have these sort of very human feelings to end up running organisations and to believe that they can. And actually, in in lots of ways, I think that's a very reassuring start to our conversation today. You describe imposter syndrome for yourself in terms of your career. You, You use this phrase, which really stuck with me, about it almost being your constant companion. And I feel like as I was reading about you and your career experiences, that you managed to somehow rather than get rid of imposter syndrome or try to kind of ignore it, actually you made it more your friend rather than your foe. You sort of almost accepted it and embraced it. And that sounds very appealing. So how could other people do that too? Well, I think the first thing is to try and understand where some of these drives come from. You know, these feelings of, oh my goodness, can I do it? And I need to try harder or someone's going to find me out. All of those things. For a long, long time, I found them really tiring and actually wearing. So even though they were clearly part of me, and, you know, we can all do work on ourselves to understand where some of those feelings come from. I mean, when I've spoken to a whole variety of people and looked at some of the scientific studies, I mean, these feelings can often arise from childhood experiences, from, you know, relationships with your parents. They can be, you know, exacerbated by school experiences and bullying or arriving at college or university for the first time where you know you're amongst a whole range of very different people Hillary Clinton 
even Hillary Clinton, she talked about arriving at Wellesley College and looking around thinking, God, all these women, you know, they're going to be much smarter than me. There was a song called Constant Craving, I remember, that was incredibly popular a few years ago. And sometimes I would feel, I do have that sense of constant craving. I do need to keep on pushing harder and working harder. And, you know, nothing was ever enough. On the other hand, it didn't serve me too badly. It was tiring, it's true, but it didn't serve me too badly because I ended up having to push myself, do things that scared me because I felt I really needed to succeed and move on. And I happened to lose my father when I was 12. And I'm sure that that had a lot to do with, you know, the kind of drive and the kind of hunger that I have. Again, other people have different experiences. But what I felt in the end, at a certain age and stage, I was thinking, do you know, there is clearly a reason why I'm experiencing this, whether or not it's evolutionary theory or whether or not actually it's something a little bit more parochial, that I clearly have these drives, so maybe I can just harness them and use them and, frankly, accept them. Now, the acceptance of this blasted imposter saying, this time, this time, this time is going to be the time it all goes pear-shaped. This time, you are not going to be able to do that or when you stand up, you know, you should step aside for someone who knows what they're doing. I mean, all those things that from time to time we can all feel when we're doing new things or stepping up. Now, I look over my shoulder at the imposter and go, I know why you're there. I know why you're there. You are going to make me try harder or practice harder or whatever, so thank you. So don't bother, don't waste energy, in my view, struggling with imposter syndrome or trying to overcome it or wrestle it to the ground or whatever. Rather go, thank you, reframe your relationship with it and then use it and move on. And just as a little side story, I was talking to someone, I was explaining this thesis to somebody who happened to be a martial arts expert. I mean, what they said was, do you know this does remind me of judo, which is that you don't win at judo by kind of battling your opponent and sort of, you know, using your strength. Actually, you use your opponent's weight in order to win. And I thought, what a great analogy that is. You know, you recognise your imposter, you go, I know who you are, and you use that weight in order to move forward. And look, frankly, because it's such a human thing, I think this is a good thing. It enables you to relate to other people and empathise with other people who might also feel this. And actually, you can help other people as well as yourself get through this stuff. And I was interested, actually, you know, what are the, some of the things that have had their sell-by date? Or do we perhaps need to challenge that kind of get talked about in everyday vernacular of work? And, you know, people talk about, like, this idea of you have to fake it until you make it which I've always had a few doubts about. And then the other one is like, which I think means really the same thing is act as if, or like act as if you've already got the job. And I always get really nervous when people get the advice of, oh, you know, you've got to sort of do the job above you, like way before you're paid to do that, or you have those responsibilities. And I just think that's really unrealistic and also unfair on individuals. But also we understand, I think, where fake it until you make it comes from. We, I can see why people discuss that and feel that that might be useful. So is there a more helpful way, do you think, of starting to think about what it is that people can do that's not maybe about faking, but you talk instead about this word stretching, which I, I much preferred. So perhaps let's chat about that for a bit. Well, so the fake it till you make it or act as if, I guess it's all part of the same thing. And I do understand where people are trying to sort of find artificial ways almost of constructing themselves that they feel could defend them, you know, create a persona that is more than they are. But I think it's 
bad advice. And the reason I think it's bad advice is, A, it's not good for you. I mean, you might be able to fake it for four weeks for a television programme. There was a series called Faking It. But, you know, trying to fake your working life and who you are day in, day out will either make you miserable or ill. And the second thing, of course, is faking it, almost creating this sort of third-party construct. That goes against the strong feelings that I have that business needs to be more human. I mean, that's one of the main reasons I wrote the book. There were two sort of key reasons. Number one is I want business to be a much more human place. (laughs) I want us all to feel confident to be the human beings we are, relate to other people, you know, particularly business leaders, to act as though they've got families and pets and pulses and consciences and even, damn it, a sense of humour, you know, that we don't all get it right all the time. We don't chew concrete blocks for breakfast. And that's not good either for the perception and reputation of business as a whole. So I really want to make business more human. I know a lot of people who are fabulously self-deprecating, funny and everything else in real life, then you put them in front of a camera or you interview them with, you know, the business press interviews them and up go their shoulders and on goes the sort of serious business face and act and so on. And I just think this is bad. This is bad for them and it's also not good for business. So that's why I talk about it's a bad idea on the faking it front. And what I'd rather talk about is about how to use tools and techniques to make the very most of who you are. And that obviously builds on understanding yourself and then thinking about what tools, what skills and so on do I need to accumulate and really, really focus on in order to give myself the confidence to fulfil those goals. And there are a series of things. I mean, I want a lot more women in particular. We talk about humanising business and organisations and a big part of that is going to be changing the chemical balance at the top of power, changing the chemical balance at the top of organisations of all kinds. And that's not very subtle code for saying we need an awful lot more women to be running some of our major institutions and organisations because more than 90% of every single institution you can think of that has really got power and resources in the world are run by guys. And it doesn't seem to be going that well. That's all I'd say. One of the things that really struck me actually throughout the book is... I just felt like you love to learn and that you were really insatiably curious and that that has stayed with you and continued throughout your career. I felt that that was kind of a real foundation for you and who you are to the point where even at one point in the book, you describe all of the different personal development things you've tried and what your experiences were. And I was thinking, and I thought I was really into this stuff. And I was thinking, wow, Rita also really likes this. You know, you'd say some things were kind of better than others, but what was refreshing is that sometimes I find the more senior people become, perhaps the less open people are about what they are learning or what they're trying, because perhaps you feel like you have to put on this persona of perfection or, you know, I'm, I kind of know it all now. And I I felt like you really kind of epitomised that learn it all growth mindset that we really advocate. And there was one area where you talked about how, you know, you tried some positive visualisation techniques and how those things could be useful. And there were some really nice examples there. And I just think, I just know our listeners are all a bit like me and would just love to know a little bit more about what they were and kind of how they've helped you. Sure. Well, as you say, I do like to learn. I think another way of putting that would be, I'm just really nosy. 
I'm nosy about people, about, you know, what's happening in the world, you know, what's happening with digital developments. I mean, I'm just very nosy and I find this gives me a lot of energy. And one of the reasons I went into my career, you know, originally I went into my career in advertising because, of course, you have to understand people and what it is that motivates them and how to connect with them and things like that. And it was a great place to be if you are very curious about people. But it's also a very important characteristic I think we all need to ensure that we keep in our lives and careers. One of the key things, I think, about making sure you stay relevant and connected and things like that is to make sure you are taking yourself on courses, finding out about new things, etc. And as you say, I have been a slight self-development course junkie. I've done that, A, because I found it quite useful to kind of get to know myself and strengths, what I can do, you know, what I can't, actually, and some of the challenges attached to that and what motivates me. But also, particularly latterly in the main, I've done some of these courses because I'm so interested in techniques that actually can help other people. And yes, I have been on Tony Robbins' Unlimited Power or Wake on the Giant Within courses. I've run over hot coals in bare feet. I mean, he's a very persuasive man. All of them in some way, shape or form I have found useful, both to understand the world and understand you know, myself and also understand how I can help other people. But one of the things that I have found particularly powerful in a whole range of situations is to use the power of positive visualisation or visualisation generally. So when I'm about to do a speech, for example, or when I'm about to present or indeed when I go into a meeting or whatever, and also when I'm feeling nervous about something, I found it really useful to run videotapes in my head about what I think I want to look like or sound like, how I want to hold myself in a way that gives me confidence. So this isn't about faking it. This is actually about visualising the best of yourself and how you want to be, how you want to appear, how your voice should be, you know, how you want to hold your head, use your eye contact, etc. I found this to be really, really useful. And, of course, deep breathing. I mean, if, again, anyone listening into this is, or enjoys yoga... Now, I found deep yogic breathing incredibly useful because you breathe into your belly as opposed to high up in your chest. It gives you a, a better sense of well-being and balance. So I've learned some of these techniques over the years and I do find them very, very useful. You know, steady eye contact gives you confidence, arranging your voice, how your head is, all of these things. And frankly, if you're desperate, Bark's Rescue Remedy is always there. Thanks very much for listening today. I appreciate that at the moment for lots of people you're fitting even more into your days or certainly combining more into your days right now. So if you are finding time for our podcast, we are really grateful for that. If you do have a minute to rate, review, subscribe, that continues to make a massive difference to us personally, to our week, but also to our ability to be able to share the podcast with lots of other people too. But we'll leave it for there and look forward to being back together next week when we're going to be talking about distraction downfalls. Bye for now. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 